This podcast contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Working directly with the community, it is the most important thing. We don't do it for them, but we train them and build their capacity to do it for themselves. So I will always say, for community programs like this to be sustained, all the community needs is a capacity building and a little support to keep the ball rolling. Every day, 100 civilians are killed in conflict and countless more are harmed. Yet their perspectives are often missing from the stories we tell about war. This is the Civilian Protection Podcast, a monthly podcast produced by Civic and PAX. Hey everyone, this is Annie Scheel, U.S. Advocacy Director at Center for Civilians in Conflict, or CIVIC. And I'm Mark Arlasco, Military Advisor from PAX. Our organizations work in conflicts around the world to protect civilians caught in war. Today's episode brings us to Northeast Nigeria, where CIVIC works with conflict-affected communities to advocate for their own protection. Before we dive in, some background on the protection issues in Nigeria. Since 2009, Northeast Nigeria has experienced sustained conflict between the government and armed opposition groups, including Boko Haram. All parties to the conflict have harmed civilians and caused serious human rights violations during the conflict, which has also resulted in the displacement of some 3 million people and significant humanitarian need. It's in this context that Civic has been working with communities in what we call community-based protection. That work is based in the fundamental belief that civilians aren't just victims of conflict, but people with agency and expertise about the conflicts they're living in and what they need to be safe. In Nigeria, Civic has worked with multiple communities to form Community Protection Committees, or CPCs. These civilian groups come together to discuss protection issues, spread the word about threats, and advocate for their needs with authorities. And so to kick us off today, I'm going to hand over co-hosting to Bullis Mungo Park, Civics Community Engagement Manager in Nigeria. Welcome, Bulus. Thank you, Mark. Happy to be here. Bulus, welcome. Um, In preparation for this episode, you and your colleagues spoke to a few CPC members about their work and how it has improved protection in their communities. And we'll hear from them in a moment, but I was wondering if first you might like to briefly describe your work and why community-based protection is so important to civics work and success. I am a community engagement specialist I work directly with the conflict-affected communities across Northeast Nigeria to provide technical support to the community to think through their protection concerns and develop ways to respond and mitigate their protection threats. Community-based protection is one of six protection pillars that involves working directly with conflict-affected people as an agent of change in their conflict situations that guarantees ownership and sustainability. Community-based protection approach is important because when communities are well equipped with all the knowledge, they can better advocate for their own protection, even when civics intervention comes to an end. And I know we'll hear some examples shortly, but can you walk us through briefly how a CPC works? What does the setup look like? What kind of people are in the committee? And how does the group achieve success? CPC, as you know, Community Protection Committees, are a set of community members who were selected by civic team. They were trained, 
to monitor trades in their communities. And together, the seed to develop strategies to respond and mitigate such protection threats. They comprises of both male and female of different age and gender. We consider diversity. So we brought about different uh, people from different uh, ethnicity and of religion because we are mindful of sustainability. So we ensure that everybody is brought together to form the CPC. And it's worthy also to mention, or I did like you to know that the composition of CPCs is very unique because they are drawn from every communities, which means every community is represented. And what CPC does is they sit together and think through some of the emerging threats in their community, be it attack from uh, the armed opposition groups, be it uh, threats from uh, the armed groups, which means uh, I'm talking about government forces, some unlawful detention, some kind of a, 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 a harm caused to civilians, maybe during crowd controls or checkpoints and what have you. So those are kinds of threats that when they seize or identify, they sit down together and then discuss and see how best they can be able to approach the military leadership to reduce such harm caused to civilians. So CPCs, as I mentioned earlier, they are very, very important agents of change of their own protection in their own community. That's super helpful. Thank you, Bulus. And that brings us to uh, the first CPC member that we spoke with uh, for today's episode, whose name is Queen. She's been working with a CPC in Northeast Nigeria for five years, since 2018. Uh, and she explained that one of the biggest threats the CPC had worked to address was kidnappings or abductions of women and girls by armed groups when they were out farming. The threat from armed opposition group is mostly adoption during farming activities. I remember the last time women and girls went for farming activities and are adopted by the insurgent. The CPC called for meeting and discussed on the issue. We mobilized ourselves and advocated to the commanding officer of Memalari Bara and a stand to checkpoint were put around farmland and military trench were dug around farmland. And that was the how we mitigated their attack. Lack of access to farmland due to fear of violence, especially for women and girls and for other vulnerable groups, was something that came up in a lot of the interviews. Is this something the CPCs deal with a lot? It is, yes. And some of the CPCs' biggest achievements have been in that area. For example, like Quinn mentioned, CPC have come together to convince the military to build fences to stop attacks from armed opposition groups in their various communities and to conduct patrols in unsafe areas where civilians, especially women and girls, gather firewood or harvest crops. Queen also gave one other example that I thought was really interesting about community efforts to stop violence and theft. There was a time thief was a daily routine in our community, but CPC reported to the security forces and community leaders. We organized meetings and discussed the issue. Mitigation strategies was put in place. It's as a result of the meeting. The youth, both Christian and Muslims in the community, we are mobilized and split into two to secure the community. The Christians cure on Friday while the Muslims cure on Sunday. 
This did not only secure our community, but rather bring peaceful coexistence. Since then, this issue was addressed. Bulus, can you explain why they organized these kind of community patrols this way, with Christian communities keeping watch on Fridays and Muslims on Sundays? Yeah, Annie, you know, Christians have holidays on Sundays. Likewise, Muslims also have their prayer days on Friday. So this is a community initiation. It's not that civic came and then helped them to think through uh, how best they can be able to protect themselves from uh, uh, all forms of criminality that are happening in their communities. So the CPC together with the community leaders and other stakeholders came together and said, we need to do something because uh, the, 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 the harm, I mean, the, the activities of the criminality has become so rampant in such a way that every Sunday when the majority uh, Christian in the community goes to church, they take advantage of their absence and rob their houses and then steal their belongings. Likewise, on Fridays, when Muslims go to their mosque for their Friday prayers, the criminals or the thieves or robbers in the community take advantage of that and they go to their houses and then bubbles into their houses and steal their belongings. So the CPCs came together with the community and discussed how best they can be able to protect each other. That's why they have come up with that strategies. That on a Sundays where Christians will be absent in the houses, the Muslims will step in for the Christians to ensure the safety of their houses and properties. And also on Friday, the Muslims will go to their mosques and then Christians youth will also now gather and then they will protect all their houses against the thefts. So this is the initiation they brought it. And that kind of an action have brought about peace and unities in the community, which is very, very amazing. So we also heard from another CPC member in another community in Northeast Nigeria named Habib. And my roles in the community is, I work as a community protections officer. Like Queen, Habib also described access to farmlands and firewood as a big issue facing his community. In his case, he described how they negotiated with local authorities and law enforcement to ensure safe access. Many, many people in our community, they can't, they don't have the access to their farmlands and they cannot go to a far place from their homes. So through the, uh, through the, through the civic and then us and then through, with the traditional rulers, we have managed it. And we have like just talked to those people who are in authority, that is law enforcement agencies. And we have talked talk to them on their behalf and the people on our behalf, we negotiated with them. And then they have since reason that yes, they should, have the access to their uh, farmlands. Bulus, can you explain more about this issue of farmland and firewood access and why it's such a big issue? So, uh, talking about firewood patrols in the community, as Habib and uh, Queen have mentioned, you know, the people in most of the communities in Northeast are predominantly farmers. And they rely so much on firewood as their major source of uh, uh, energy. They use it to cook, they use it to warm their houses. Some of them even use it to burn it at chapel and then uh, sell it to get some uh, uh, money from it. So firewood is very, very essential for communities in Northeast. And so because of the attacks and adoption by armed opposition groups, 
whatsoever community have to go from their community to some certain kilometers away to get such firewoods, they have been adopted some kids. Now, the community have advocated to the military to help them escort these civilians to get firewood so that they can uh, improve their lives and also to use it as uh, a source of energy to cook. And so every day, the military with others, community militias like the CJTF and the hunters. Bullis was referring to the Civilian Joint Task Force, or CJTF, and to the hunters, which are community militias that have formed to protect local communities from attacks by Boko Haram. The CJTFs will come together and then form a patrol team to escort the civilians to the bush in order to get uh, firewood. And this was as a result of advocacy efforts by CPCs. And this is happening across all the civic location. It has been replicated in all our civic location. And thousands and hundreds of thousands of civilians now are finding it easy under security cover to go out to fetch firewood for their own domestic use. In another example, Habib described communities' fear and confusion when the military would enter the community with armored tricycles. There are some uh, people who are like uh, called uh, a part of the community, the civilian JTFs and some other military officers are coming with a tricycle uh, to the community. You know, the other oppositions, armed opposition, that is the uh, people that, is, uh, that are attacking the community, mm. were using that kind of a thing. And from a distance, you cannot identify whether they are good ones or the bad ones. Oh, yes. So when they came into community and little, uh, many of our people like this, they went away and you know, they leave their homes. And so we talked to the law enforcement agencies. When they look at it and they see it and they said, wow, this is reasonable. We have never thought of it. And you come with this things and I think we're going to we're going to put a stop to it and we will talk to our law enforcement agencies all of our colleagues and uh, all of the junior ranking officers and all of them to stop coming into the community with that kind of kind of a tricycles and so they talk to their own uh, uh, colleagues and, 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 and it stopped and, and it stopped and, and the, the communities stopped fear they are no more fear they are no more fear right yes we are no more in fear no more in danger okay and I think that kind of a Thing. I love I love doing it and I love that yes the fact that yes civic train us and then and give us the knowledge for us to do it. Yes, basically you had a situation where the military and militia will come in very quickly without warning or identifying themselves using tricycles, and that is the same that the armed opposition group also use. For example, in one of the communities, the CJTFs have uh, used such a motorcycle and the community thought it was a military. And that is how uh, the community were attacked because they were taken unaware. And as a result, the CPC now uh, saw the need to put a stop to those action because it's exposing them to more harm because the armed opposition group will disguise as a militia or a military group to come to their community to attack them. And so they have visited 
the commanding officers in one of the military uh, uh, brigades, and they have advocated for the stop of such movements, mostly at night by the military and then militia groups. And that was given a positive response. The last person we spoke to for today's episode is a man named Alaji Abba, who is part of the government, a district head, in a community where Civic also works with CPCs. He's worked closely with the CPC in his community and has helped foster dialogues between communities and armed forces about protection issues. Uh, before the CPC was created in my community, most of our community members could hardly reach out to military to report their security concerns because there was tension between community people and military. There was no trust between civilians and military. But the CPC has helped build a good relationship between the military and our community. Alaji Abba also described how the CPC has served unexpected functions in the community. I remember during the COVID-19 era, our people did not believe that the pandemic exists. CPC members conducted sensitization and awareness, which helped our community to understand negative impact of COVID-19 and mitigation measures like hand washing, social distancing, and the need to report any suspected cases. I also remember how CPC members conducted sensitization campaign against election violence months ago. It was wonderful. Yes, one thing about the CPC is that while we at Civic work with the community to help set them up, they are owned by the community. So even though they started focusing on uh, maybe a few specific protection concerns, we have also seen them grow to support communities' effort in other areas like COVID-19 uh, pandemic and conflict resolutions. And what happens if Civic leaves a community? So we have already started from a scratch. What I mean is sustainability from scratch. The Community Protection Committee are aware that this program is community-driven, is owned by the community, and we made them understand that Civic will not be there forever. So what we did was to tell them that this is your program, and you should try as much as possible to sustain it, because all the knowledge that Civics will give you will help you in future and these they are aware. For example, in one of our program uh, location, project location in Bama, we have withdrawn tactically from working there for over a year, but they are sustaining themselves now. They do conduct meetings, they do advocacies for their own protections, they have meetings with security forces and other community leaders and send reports to us here in Civic about the activities that took place. And we are sure that other locations also uh, are good to go. When Civic stops, they are ready to uh, take over from where we stop. And these are some of the things that we also uh, ask them, particularly when we visit them. We ask them, what do you think when uh, Civic stop coming or maybe when Civic funding ends? They said that they are good to continue the good work they are doing with Civic but they will surely miss us, but they are also assuring us that the good work they are doing will not stop because of Civic's absence. 
Bulus, can you speak a little bit about what you and Civic more broadly have learned from this work uh, about how the international community can do a better job of supporting conflict-affected communities and why that's so important? So, Annie, one of my best lessons that I learned in all these years working with communities is that when communities were well equipped, when their capacity is built, they can surely sustain themselves. What I want to say is, working directly with the community, it is the most important thing. For other international communities, what we are doing is a result-based approach. We don't do it for them, but we train them and build their capacity to do it for themselves. So I will always say, for community programs like this to be sustained, all the community needs is a capacity building and a little support to keep the ball rolling. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I think, Bulu, so much of what your work and the work of communities shows, again, is this idea that civilians are not just victims of a conflict, right? That they are agents of their own protection, that they are experts, that they know what they need. Uh, and that I think we've seen often to be lacking in international responses. So um, so thank you for all that you do on that. And thank you so much, Bulus, for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today's episode of the Civilian Protection Podcast. It's also the end of season two. And thanks for listening. Stay tuned for updates on when we'll return with season three. For further updates on our work, check out the websites for Civic and PAX, as well as at Protection Pod on Twitter. The Civilian Protection Podcast is brought to you by Center for Civilians in Conflict and PAX, two NGOs working to improve the lives of civilians in conflict. Today's episode was written by Annie Scheel and Bulus Mongopark, with assistance from Aaron Bell, Mark Orlasco, and Hajar Naili. It was produced by the Podcast Guru. Hajar Naili and Matt Longmore made sure we're online. We would like to thank our guests for joining us and for sharing their insights. You can find us on Spotify or anywhere you get your podcasts. We want to hear from you. Share your thoughts on this episode or topics you'd like us to cover by emailing civilianprotectionpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ProtectionPod to stay up to date on our episodes and guest speakers. And to get behind-the-scenes content like full interviews. You can also find behind-the-scenes content and interviews on our YouTube channel, as well as civiliansinconflict.org slash podcast and protectionsofcivilians.org. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.